Welcome to Ed Ideas, relevant conversations for Christian education. As image bearers of God, we have been created to actually carry out this work of cultivation, unpacking, unfurling, so that making is how we be human. Anytime culture is going through transition and there's significant change, you can either look at it as, hey, this is the worst thing ever, or what an opportunity. We know that all adolescents are asking some really direction-setting questions in their life. The very first thing said about us in the Hebrew Scriptures is not that we are bad, that we are dirty, that we are sinful, that we are shameful, that we are anything. The very first thing said about us is we bear the image of God. Welcome to Ed Ideas. This is Brandon Tatum, and today we have Ben Langford. Ben is a professor of Bible at Oklahoma Christian University, and he also oversees the missions program at OC. Today we're going to talk about Generation Z, and we're going to look at, look at it through the lens of postmodernism and modernism and how that impacts the formation of our kids. But first, as we get going here, Ben, let's just start with uh, culture. Could you define culture for us? So... Uh so Stephen Long says that culture is probably one of the three or four most difficult words to define in the English language. So for example, if I say, if we use that term culture, and I say, you know what, you know what I mean by culture? Everybody's going to go, yeah, we know what you mean. And then I'm going to say, define it. And you're going to go, well, culture is like everything, which is to say, if it's everything, then it's nothing, right? It's one of those words that's very, very difficult to define. So the, the, the approach I take um, to the idea of culture uh, is I take kind of a narrative approach. In other words, um, we're all living by some kind of narrative or several narratives, right? And those narratives, uh, they kind of inform who we are how we're supposed to behave, how we're supposed to interact. So, you know, you can't see this on the podcast, but if I do this and reach out my hand, how do you know how to do that? And that's a dumb question. We're like, well, of course, because that's what we've learned, right? So you reach out and you shake your hand. And the question becomes, when I reach out to shake a hand, how come he doesn't flinch, right? Because there's these cultural practices, there's these practices and habits that if you reach out your hand, this is a sign hey, this is a sign of greeting or friendship. So for example, uh, we have narratives about what it means to be an American, right? And then out of that, your own identity is formed and Americans do certain things, they speak English, they do all these things. Let, let, me, give an, let me give an example that's, not, uh, that's kind of fun. So my wife is not a, she's not an avid reader. But uh, she reads on occasion and reads a novel here and there. But when, when, the, when the book The Hunger Games came out, she heard from her friend to, to read The Hunger Games before the movies ever came out. And so I'm seeing my wife tear through this book, like the first one she's done, the second one like she's done. She's in the third one. I don't even know how many there were. But I'm just sitting there one day going, what in the world? what is this book about that you are so interested in? And she was like, oh, this, it's a story about, you have like these 13 districts, and, and there's this one district that has all the food, 
In all the other districts, they have to send two representatives, usually like teenage kids, and they have to send them, and they have to, they put them in this area, and they put, they put swords and weapons in the middle, and they say go, and they have to fight to the death while everyone from this district that uh, is in charge of everything, they have to fight to the death, and the last one standing gets a food supply for the entire year, hence the name Hunger Games. And I looked at my wife and I was like, what kind of sick book is this? And she's like, I know, I know, but it's really, really good, right? So we go on talking about this book and she's telling me about how the Hunger Games work, right? That they have to grab a weapon and then they're out, they're out in the forest and outside and they have to fight to the death. And my response to her is like, well, why don't they just run away? And she says, you don't understand. They can't run away. And I'm like, whoa into this book, <laughs> right? But I tell that story as an example. Do you see how she's living in a particular narrative where certain actions make sense? My value is to run away. I'm just going to say that's my value, right, in that situation. But according to that narrative, it doesn't work, does it? Right? Like, for example, in the United States, you can do anything, you know, but there are certain actions Right? If I come up and greet you like this, people are not going to respond. You're like, you can't really do that. Right? So part of the way I define culture, uh, and it works pretty well, is the narratives we live by that make sense of the world. Right? So uh, in other words, when I ask you what's your value or what's some of your principles, right? we all have values and principles that we live by. Well, those really make sense within a larger narrative that we believe to be true, right? Um, it's what Charles Taylor, I think we're gonna talk maybe about him in a minute, it's what he calls a social imaginary. Not that we're just imagining the world, but it's this shared imagination that we have that when I reach out my hand, that Brandon will reciprocate. And we don't have to say anything, we know what that means, right? And so culture is that place of meaning where we act and live under the umbrella of some larger story, or to be honest with you, there's multiple narratives going on, right? Uh, I see Sayida out here in the audience, and there's one narrative and culture at home, and then there's one narrative and culture at work, right? And they overlap, but you function in different ways. Depends on the narrative you're living out. Depends if you're mom or if you're, you know, uh, working at OCA, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. A good example you used uh, of the handshake example as you move to Uganda, there's a very different yes. practice, right? Yeah. So uh, one thing that would make us feel very uncomfortable in Uganda is that women, uh, they greet on their knees. So they greet men and other women on their knees, which makes Western people very uncomfortable. If, if I don't give them a heads up, they don't know what's going on. Like, why are they on their knees? Why are they doing this? Right? And for us within a narrative of kind of egalitarianism, right, that uh, I don't expect any woman in here to get down on their knees to greet me or any other man, uh, because there's a certain narrative going on. Uh, but in Uganda, there's a, there's, a, there's a different narrative about the role of men and women. And women do feel, I don't make them stand up, because they do feel fairly uncomfortable if they are standing, right, because there's this larger narrative. Now, it's, it might be our tendency to think, Marner, our, our, our culture is so much better. Get up off your knees. You know, women need to, but 
right? You, everyone tends to think their story or their narrative, their culture is, is superior. Otherwise, you wouldn't live in it. You would, you would make a different decision, possibly. Right. Right. Mm. You don't always get to make a different decision, but in general, you, know, right. you might think this is better. Uh, you mentioned Charles Taylor. So Charles Taylor kind of lays out secular one, secular two, secular three, mm -hmm. familiar with this. Yep. Um, brief overview. Secular one is a time when we, 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 that we lived in where there were sacred places and there were non-sacred places. And if we wanted to experience God, you had to experience it in a sacred place with a yep. sacred person, priest. Or, and then we moved as a culture into, into, into secular two, which the sacred kind of became less sacred, the non-sacred kind of became more sacred, and so the, the lines were blurred, um, and, and there was still, God was still functioning, but in that, in that movement of culture, uh, kind of deism started to kind of take root, yeah. uh, that there was a God, but we don't, he doesn't interact with us a whole lot, and, and some would argue, that we're now in a secular three, which is, yes, still deistic, but also even to the point of, I'm not sure I can believe in this God. Yeah. Uh, where do you think we're at culturally right yeah. now? Yeah, and my first response to the question is, uh, what do you mean by we? You know, we talked yeah. about that earlier. Do we mean Americans? Do we mean people in Oklahoma? Right, that's a, that's a fairly different question because people from, I ask my students, are people from Edmond, Oklahoma the same as they are from the Bronx, New York? And they're like, no, they're not, right? These are just different people. Uh, but I would say um, probably in secular two, right? Not in secular one, especially those of us that are in churches of Christ. So I, an interesting, I, I teach a class called Gospel Church and Cultures. And we do a project called an eth uh, theological ethnography. So I don't have them go to libraries and study. I have them go to the church and participate in worship. And they, they do some like uh, missionary practices of ethnography, studying culture, studying architecture, looking at saying, what is, how do we understand who God is and who these people are? So we use Memorial Road, uh, the auditorium. And what's interesting, when we were talking about this, and I was having them observe the worship space, we have a few students that aren't Church of Christ that come from like high church, like uh, Lutheran background and Methodist. And the first thing they noticed was how plain it was. Church of Christ people were like, this is not plain, this is great. You should have seen my church back home. You know, it was like, there's no, there's very little artwork, there's very little color, right? And part of that is our own tradition of, we don't have like these sacred spaces or priests like the priesthood of all believers. Right? There's more, there's a broader sense about where you encounter God. Uh, you also don't find crosses in most churches of Christ, but you will find some decor at the beginning, like up on stage. So what kind of decor, well, I don't know if it's a podcast, so we can't have an answer, but what the kind of decor you find up on most stages at Churches of Christ is uh, uh, flowers and plants and trees and nature which kind of goes to secular too, you find God in not just sacred things like a cross, but things like uh, nature. Okay. Um, but I do think we're very close to secular three at times. 
Um, because even though we have, we still encounter God, many Christians, especially in the Bible Belt, um, and it shows up for me in, in how we pray, and this is not a critique of how we pray, it's just an observation about it, right? So usually in Church of Christ, we don't have any rote prayers. Like no one hands you a prayer and says, pray this prayer. Like it's just extemporaneous, it's from the heart. If somebody asks you to pray on Sunday morning, you're just going to get up there and you're going to pray. Now, this isn't if not everybody prays like this, but typically, and I hear this in chapel at Oklahoma Christian, but typically the, the prayer goes something like this. Even though it's not written down, it's pretty much the same. It's, God, we just want to thank you for this opportunity to gather here. Help us, help us, help us, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. And thank you. And thank you. Yeah, thank you. Well, I did say thank you for this opportunity. Right? Yeah, there you go. Okay. Thank you for this opportunity. Help us. Now, what I hear about, that's a, that's a great prayer. That's, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But what I hear about that is this subtle thing going on of the assumption of a narrative that, God, you've, done, you've already done your work. You've provided opportunity. Or, God, you've already done your work in Jesus. Now it's up to us. I hear that a lot in kind of mm -hmm. religious Christian culture in, right. in, uh, in Oklahoma. Yeah. And so where that bumps up against secular three is, right, is that we're not actually encountering God. God's already done his work. He's done. It's really just about us now. And maybe God helps us, but it's really about us, right? I feel that in my own life and the kind of narrative. Now, one of the positive things it does is like, oh, I've, I'm, I've got to take responsibility. But it does kind of distance God to the point where a little bit like he's not really as active as we give him claim to be. Mm -hmm. And um, that really, if anything's going to get done, God's not going to do what we are. Yeah. Right? So I, that's where, for yeah. me, it bumps a little bit into that secular three. Yeah. Not secular three like we don't believe. But practically speaking, we don't believe because God is pretty much done with his work. Does that make sense? Yeah, I like that answer. I, and this is a, a bold statement maybe to say in front of people that I go to church with. So, But I'm going to say it anyways. I, I preach all the time, so, all right, I, so I do that all the time. Uh, I, I agree. I think we are, we are living in secular two, but pragmatically secular three seeps in. And, and we see it in prayer. So I've gone to church my whole life. And I have never been at a church where they have prayed for the blind man to see. Yeah. Right. And, and it's like, do we not believe that that could happen? Yeah. Um, so it just it's an interesting conversation that could kind of take us down a rabbit hole, and I don't want to go there. Yeah. But uh, but I do see some secular three kind of popping out. Yeah. Um, let's talk specifically about culture. Um, there's some different ways to view culture, and you, yep. you do a really good way of, of explaining this. There's a redemptive center, and there's this creation center approach. Yep. Talk to us about that. Okay, so this is a, um, an aspect, I, uh, something I, I like to talk with students and people. I mean, culture is this very, like we said, very hard to, to pin down. What are we talking about? We're talking about culture. One of the exercises I like to do with students, and I learned this from uh, Stephen Bevins, is he talks about that everyone approaches culture with uh, some kinds of assumptions, whether they explicitly know it or implicitly know it, right? 
And you have Christians approach it with theological assumptions. In other words, um, how am I evaluating culture when I come in? You know. So he has, on one side, he has a, a, a creation-centered view of culture. And he talks about a creation-centered view of culture is that uh, God created the world and he created human beings who are, that's where culture comes from and what we're influenced by. And that he created the world good and then he created human beings very good and they're made in his image. Therefore, even though creation-centered view knows that human beings aren't always good, they could say in general, culture is a good thing that God created this. It's, it's part of what it means to be human. You can't live and be human and be separated from culture. If you're speaking a language, if you're interacting with people, that's culture happening, right? So in general, a creation-centered view says, this is part of what God makes, because he makes human beings, and human beings are made in the image of God. Therefore, culture, in general, can be trusted. Now, redemptive center view, on the other hand, is this basic assumption that they may say, yep, yeah, God created the world and he created humans good, but now after the fall, humans are, you can't trust humans. Like the total depravity of human beings. You've heard that probably from uh, certain church traditions. And so therefore, um, you can't really trust culture because human beings produce culture. You can't trust it. It doesn't need to be something trusted. It needs to be, re it needs to be replaced. It needs to be redeemed, like redemption center view. And so what I do with students, and I think it's helpful in talking about culture, is n what I do is not to say which one's better, right? In fact, Paul in Romans affirms both of them. At the beginning of Romans, he says, you Gentiles, you should have known by creation. You should have known how things were made. I mean, he's kind of appealing to this like the created order that you should have known God. And then later on uh, in Romans, he basically takes a redemptive centered view. He, t he holds both of them up. The point is not to say which one is better or worse. The point is, is to ask yourself and evaluate when you're talking about culture and you're thinking about it as a Christian, uh, it's good to be self-reflective about kind of where your beginning points are. So for example, I asked students, I said, when the word in church comes up, the word culture comes up. When your preacher talks about culture, is that usually a positive word? You're shaking your head no. It's ne and for most churches, depends on the church, right? But most churches that we're probably a part of, we, we assume a redemptive-centered approach. Culture is usually a bad word in church. Not every church, by the way, but it's usually a bad word. And what I want to challenge, and I, I can make some critiques about the weaknesses of a creation-centered view, but the challenge for us who, who naturally, and don't feel bad, don't be like, I can't believe I think that way. No, you, that's part of culture, right? You've grown up in it. It's the air you breathe, right? Uh, but one of the weaknesses of a redemptive-centered view is that culture you can't be trusted, right? Is that we have to begin to ask, well, if human beings are, are influenced, they're, they're cultivated by culture, and they're also cultivating the cultures around them, um, to what extent is the image of God still there in human beings? Does that make sense? Is there anything good about human beings? And if we say no, is there something we're denying about them being made in the image of God? 
right? So uh, it's what I have to remind myself, I have a, a, a 14 year old son, he's in junior high, hopefully he's not gonna hear this. But I have to remind myself, because at times I go, what is good about an eighth grade kid? Right, if you teach junior high, uh, junior high teachers, or if you deal with that, you're like, oh, you just wanna pull your hair out sometimes, you know, that adolescent period. And I have to remind myself, wait a minute, can't think that way about him. Because he's still, to whatever extent I have to believe, he's made in the image of God. And so, right, I, take, mm -hmm. I have to take a little more creation-centered view that not all he does and the ways that he, as much as it drives me crazy, uh, what about that is image-bearing, right? That I can trust and that I can, that I can grab onto and that I can cultivate and I can, uh, anyway. So that's, a, that's just a, I think it's a good exercise to think about where you begin, right? Because we get caught up talking about culture and people are like, oh, you can't trust culture, right? And you can kind of know, okay, here's where they're coming from, right? And there's other ways to approach culture, uh, at least theologically. Okay, we're, we're going to get back here, but let's move into a modernism, postmodernism yep. talk. So sure. let's talk about modernism. Let's yep. start there. Okay, so one of the things that, uh, the other thing that happens in church is um, usually postmodernism is a dirty word. Um, and that strikes me as odd because if you're critiquing postmodernism, you have to critique modernism. Uh, and let me explain that. Uh, really quick. And then what I find is that they're, as they're critiquing postmodernism, they're thoroughly modern, right? Without even knowing it. Okay? So the, modernism comes from the Latin word motto or now or just now. Uh, modernism develops, I mean, it starts with the Renaissance and uh, into the Enlightenment in the 17th and 18th, uh, late 16th and 17th and 18th centuries. And basically, uh, it's this movement. The story of modernism is the story of progress. Okay? And by the way, even though we live in postmodern times, modernity is, is still alive and kicking. Okay? Because the, remember I talked about culture has overarching stories, and the story of modernity is progress. Now think about the last election. Now I'm, I realize I'm talking about politics. I'm not making any political statements about one side or the other. But if you look at the campaign slogans for both, who are very different candidates, right? One was forward together. The other was make America great again. While one was kind of pointing backwards towards something, they were still pointing towards greatness. They were still pointing towards progress, right? Let's make it great again. Let's progress. Let's do. And the other candidate was forward together. Let's go forward together, right? What was fascinating, even though they had different approaches uh, politically, they were beating the same drum. They were beating the drum of progress. Because that is the narrative by which you live by. Think about your life. And this is gonna sound weird, because you're gonna be like, Ben, what other, how else would I live? We're trying to progress economically in our careers. We're trying to progress in our spiritual lives. We're trying to progress uh, we're trying to get better. We don't want to stay the same. We want to grow. We want to get better. And I know that sounds odd that I'm even saying that as if that's, there's another option, but that's so thoroughly our narrative 
that we cannot imagine another way, right? So, uh, so much so, so you have this story of progress. And really, our ancestors in Western culture really believed that you could progress to utopia. I mean, this is not like an outlandish idea. There, you go back and read writings, they believed there was gonna be utopia, including Alexander Campbell, if anybody in Churches of Christ knows that name, one of the, uh, one of the early pioneers in, in the Restoration Movement. He's kind of our Alexander Campbell and Martin W. Snow. So Campbell, he really believed that uh, America was going to be this place where we were going to progress. So America is very modern in the, in the, in the classic sense. America said, forget the past. Forget the king, forget the monarchies, forget the religion. For, let's start all over. Let's begin again. Let's begin with now, right? And one of the characteristics of modernity is you forget the past and you move forward to the future. Well, one of the things that Campbell did is that he, he, he thought that if we could just get back to the Bible, restore the New Testament church, bring people, have people use their reason to read the Bible, restore the New Testament church, and bring people back together in unity, he believed it would usher in the second coming of Christ. That that kind of unity and Christian uh, restoration of the, the true church would usher in the second coming of Christ. This is, this is what he writes about, okay? And then uh, he, he dies, at the end of his life as an old man, he dies as the Civil War is beginning. And it crushes him. Because everything he's working for, theologically, socially, I mean, the Civil War, we're still reeling from the Civil War, I think. Right? Now, what's interesting about post-modernity is this, I mean, about modernity is this. Um, Slowly by surely, people gave up on the, the, I, the notion of utopia, right? And probably by the end of World War II, Americans had really given up on the notion of utopia. They'd been through two world wars, and World War II ends with the dropping of atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So people are getting asking, is this what progress looks like? Only to kill each other more efficiently, right? And so by the end of World War II, for sure, the utopia is dead. But what doesn't die, how do you get to utopia? You get there through progress. What doesn't die is the notion of progress, right? The notion of progress is alive and well. Without, it's the means to an end, and the end doesn't exist anymore. No one, does anybody in the room believe the utopia is possible? Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you believe in a general idea that progress is good. Generally, right? I know we all believe in progress. None of us believe in utopia. You see a narrative working out here? So um, you get to this point to where you begin to ask questions. Progress towards what? And the answer culturally is it doesn't matter as long as we're progressing. Economically, socially, politically, spiritually. Right? So here's one of the things about postmodernism. Postmodernism, so if motto, modernism means motto means now. Postmodernism means after now. Right? Modernism is always about progressing to the next thing. Well, if postmodernism is the next thing after modernism, what is it? 
It's modernism all over again. So in a sense, postmodernism is a really difficult thing to define because it's not, and I know this is kind of philosophical, but it's not, it's, it's kind of a thing, but it's not a thing, right? In some ways, it's the logical conclusion of modernity. What postmodernism is, and if I had a screen, I'd show you, it's like I have this picture of this black, it's a black and white picture of this boat, this very kind of modern, you know, like Titanic looking boat, right? It's, it's very, very impressive. It looks, it's a cool picture. And this boat is shipwrecked up on the rocks. And I say to students, that boat is modernity. And it's this very modern looking boat, right? And then there's like five guys, you could see them faintly, they're standing on the, on the bow of the boat and they're looking over and they're looking down at this, and it's clearly this boat is run up on some big rocks. It's not going anywhere. And I say postmodernity is those five guys standing up on that boat, looking down and going, hmm, this ship's not going anywhere. You want to play shuffleboard? <laughs> right? Because the real dilemma, postmodernity is really at, the, at its very core a critique of what modernity has promised to do for us. Right? The problem is, and it's a valid critique, I think it's actually a really good critique. Right? I'm not sure the entire narrative, the Christian narrative, is about progress. Now, this, the, the narrative of modernity comes out of a Christian sense. Like, the reason why we think about progress is because Western culture is influenced by, uh, it's influenced by the Christian narrative. Um, but I'm not sure the narrative, Western culture's narrative and gospel narrative line up exactly and um, in terms of progress. And um, uh, one of the things that I think makes postmodernity is, is difficult is that postmodernity is just a recognition that modernity is not going to get us where it promises to get us, uh, but you can't get off the boat. Like we're not going to go back to pre-modern. Right? Nobody's going to really stop going to the doctor or, or really give up on science, which is a very modern thing. Like, I'm not going to give up on science. I'm gonna, when I get sick, I'm going to go to the doctor. Right? Um, I'm going I'm to trust accountants when they, you know, they, that's a very modern practice. I'm going to trust those things. We, you know, so modernity is not dead. Uh, in fact, someone said modernity, it can't end. It never ends. It's like, uh, it's like, Modernity is kind of over, but it can't end. In other words, post-modernity is recognized there's limits to modernity. It's, it's, it's over. But it's not really over. It's kind of like an old record player where you come to the end of the record and it skips on the last note over and over again. That's modernity. And the last note it's skipping that we're all dancing to is progress, 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 progress. And you're like, when's this going to end? And they're like, it's not. We're just going to keep going, right? Yeah. Let me ask you, this is a, a question that was just texted in. Yeah. Would narrative be synonymous with paradigm? Or does narrative imply more of your whole life story, beginning, middle, and end? Yeah. Uh, it depends on how you define paradigm. Um, I tend to think, I, I tend to want to, um, so, so people have also compared it with like worldview like what's your worldview? 
Um, I like Charles Taylor's term, social imaginaries, really well. Because I don't think, I think the narrative you're living in is not created by you, right? So one of the things that's another way to define culture, it works really well in English. So culture, that word culture, it's a, um, it was first a metaphor that has now be become a noun, right? So it's its own thing. But it was first used as a metaphor. So we have other aspects in life where we talk about culture. So you can have a, 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 a culture of strawberries, right? It's this agricultural term. Even agricultural has it in it, right? So culture is, uh, kind of a way to use that metaphor is how, you, how people are cultivated and how they are cultivating the world around them, right? So culture is this like, you are being cultivated. If you're speaking English, you didn't come up with the English language, you were cultivated in that. And by the way, you think in English, which makes you think a certain way, right? In, Luso in the Basoga, uh, let me give you an example. Um, in English, if I'm, if I'm going to the airport and I'm running late and I'm running down the terminal and I get to my gate and I see the plane's already backing out, most likely an American is going to say, ah, oh, I missed my plane. If a Masoga is running, doing the same thing and they're late and they see the plane backing out, they're going to say, and it's going to, this is how they would say it in Lusoga, they're going to say, but the plane is left without me. Do you see the difference between those two? I miss my plane, the plane left without me, right? If I, you understand what I'm saying when I say the plane left without me, but that sounds funny in English, doesn't it? That doesn't sound how like we think, right? It's a matter of agency, right? So my language and the narrative I believe to be most true puts the agency primarily on me. In Uganda, the narrative they believe to be mostly true and how the language works primarily puts the world is not contingent on them, they're, uh, they are contingent on how, what the world happens to them, right? Which most Americans think, uh, well, they're not very responsible, right? But it's also why Africa is the most Christian subcontinent in the world. Because they automatically have a worldview that says the world's not contingent on me. It's contingent on something outside of me, and the greatest thing outside of me is God. Hmm. There's other things like spirits and, you know, other people. So if Nike's named it for us, Nike has, Nike has named the narrative you believe. What's Nike say? Just do it. There wasn't a day I went, went by in Uganda that I didn't hear the phrase come out of a Ugandan's mouth, but what can I do? Now that narrative may not make sense to you, but it... But you see how that's a different assumption and narrative, yeah. right? So, um, uh, sorry, what was your question? I'll tell you well, I, think, I think you answered it. Okay. I think you're good. Yeah, um, this idea about. Yeah, let's move on to, to a landing point here. So Andy Crouch does a lot, has done a lot of, of culture um, Speaking, he's just wrote a book, Making Culture. He, he says Christians can view culture in three ways. We can critique culture, we can condemn culture, or we can create culture. Yeah. Where, where do you think we should land within those three, those three opportunities? I think as Christians, uh, I think I would land in the create.
but with a caveat. Um, Christianity has a rich history. I think, I think we can create um, by reappropriating some of our Christian past, right? In other words, if I'm just fully as a Christian thinking, let's create something new. I mean, one of the things that, that is sociologically uh, talked about amongst ministers is that um, Protestant ministers have to reinvent themselves about every 10 years. Protestant churches have to reinvent themselves about every 10 years. Catholic, Catholic churches, they reinvent themselves about 300, every 300 years, which means every time there's a major philosophical shift, they, they shift, right? Now, I'm not trying to promote Catholics or Protestants either one, but it's, it's in our nature as Protestants to forget the past and start over with something new, right? But I think to be creative is to say uh, there are practices and there, are, there is tradition within Christianity that has sustained Christianity for a long, long time. It's, it's developed and it's changed and people have been creative and, and the Protestant Reformation was one of those, right? But I would say create, not in a modern sense of forget the past and let's just go every five years, let's try something new, right? Which is like the end of the record that Jesus going over and over again. But I think be creative, it's, it's reappropriating the rich gifts of God that he's given to his people through his word, through his people, um, throughout time and culture. Um, and I think, I, I think we haven't uh, fully, I think we haven't fully tapped into that, right? Right. And so, so, um, You've done a really good job of, of laying the groundwork here of, of culture. So let's talk specifically about the message that our, that our church, and I, and I don't mean church as in the church I attend, I yep. mean in a, in a broader sense. What narrative is the church communicating, um, and, and, how is that, and how is that connected to this lens of how we view culture? Yeah, so um, it, this has been one of my... Uh, things that I've talked about for quite a bit in, in training people who are going to do ministry is that um, the primary when I ask people what's the gospel the primary response is it, Jesus dies for your sins which is good like that's that yeah that's the gospel but the, the primary way we think about that is that uh, the problem the existential problem for human beings is their guilt and condemnation whether they feel it or not um, but one of the things that's happened from modernity is that once you get kind of the question of post-modernity is this, that if you get modernity progress, 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 and you don't have a utopia, which I'm not talking about heaven or anything, you don't, if you give up on utopia, then the question becomes, well, progress towards what? And it's what we said, it's, it doesn't matter. So the real existential question of our generation is not questions about guilt or condemnation. I, I ask my students all the time, do you guys, do your generation feel guilty? Somebody will raise their hand and like, well, I do. And I was like, did you go to church? And they're like, yes. And he goes, well, then that's probably why. But in general, do your non-church friends feel guilty? No, they don't feel guilty. I'm not saying they're not guilty. 
they're probably guilty of lots of things. But what's their, what's their primary concern? And I don't even have to hint at it. Every student knows this. It ends up with one or two or three things. Their, their primary problem is despair. It, it's a question of meaning. It's a question of purpose. That's the existential question of our day. And the gospel we proclaim addresses an existential purpose, an existential uh, uh, concern that our culture is not concerned about. Do you know who's concerned about, you know which culture is concerned about um, guilt and condemnation? Medieval Europe. We've inherited a gospel that, that is, and I say that is the gospel, because it does address guilt and condemnation. But I always say, if, if your gospel only addresses sin, your gospel's way too small. You haven't read the scriptures very well. Because Jesus addresses meaning and purpose. Right? Uh, can I give another example? So mm -hmm. in the first, the first four centuries, uh, when Christianity is moving from Judaism to a Gentile, primarily Greek, right, it's going to be, I mean, we're all Gentiles in here, right? That's what it is now. But when a group moves into Greek culture, Greeks didn't care about the law. That wasn't their concern. Israel's concern was, oh, we broke the law. We, you know, we got to do this. That wasn't Gentiles' concern. Greeks weren't concerned about that. What they were concerned about was fate and death. They were concerned about the gods. Have the gods fated us? And death, right? So if you watch Gladiator, any of those movies were just shadows and dust. Right? You read, you read ancient Greek literature, it's always about fate and death. How are, they, how are the gods? What's my fate? What's, and the real concern is death. So in the book of Acts, when you have these seven sermons that happen, if you notice in the seven sermons, the, the, the good news of the sermon is not the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus does deal with guilt, right? Jesus took my place, right? That kind of exchange that happens. But if you look in those seven sermons, which are primarily Gentile people, uh, the good news, the climax of the sermon is never the death of Jesus. It's always the resurrection. Remember when Paul's talking on, the, on Mars Hill in Athens? What's the question that the philosophers want to talk to him about afterwards? You talked about this resurrection thing. Can we hear more about that? Because that actually addresses their existential concern of, of fate and death. So I think in a world especially with our youth, right? I, I always say this, have you heard this uh, phrase in evangelism? You gotta tell them the good news before you tell them the bad news. Have you heard that in evangelism? I hate that phrase. Because I think good news should be apparently good news. For example, Moses didn't walk into Egypt and tell the Israelites, hey, I've got some bad news. You're slaves. And Israel goes, what? I... No, he walked in and said to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Israel went, what's going on now right like good news should be apparent should be apparently good news so um i think one of the ways and i think this is where you're going that we can talk about good news is um not and it's not to say we don't talk about jesus forgiving sin but we talk about how the gospel uh brings meaning and purpose to our lives and one of the ways i think so youth all the time uh, I hear college students, they won't take an entry-level job, right? Because it, they're like, it's just not fulfilling. It doesn't have any meaning, right? And the older generation is like, well, I worked a job for 50 years, and I hated it, but I did it, you know. But, I mean, we want 
this generation is, and, and that's been cultivated in us because of this narrative that's going on. This progressive narrative. This progressive narrative that doesn't have any meaning or purpose at the end of it. And so they're desperately asking, what does this all mean? What's the purpose? What's the meaning of my life? What's the purpose? Which could be a narcissistic turn if you can focus on yourself. But I think the kingdom of God actually addresses that is that you can actually participate in something bigger than yourself. So what's a question we should be asking? Um, as a, as a um, all of us, but what's a question that we should be encouraging millennials and Generation Z to be asking? Yeah, so, um, ooh, I don't know the answer to that. That's a, that's a really good question. I, I do know this, is that when Jesus comes into the world, uh, he becomes fully human. He's fully God and fully human. And he affirms this life and he affirms our bodies. There's meaning and purpose in that. And in the resurrection, once and for all, Jesus wasn't separated from his body. He was raised in the body. He ascended to heaven in the body. Jesus is still in the body. He is. Like, he has to be. Like, otherwise, there's no resurrection. And he fully affirms that your bodies matter. Right now, here and now matters. Right? So, uh, I'm going to tell a story and then I think this is a question. So when we were in Uganda, you may have heard me tell this story, we, we dug water wells. People would ask us, why are you digging water wells? He said, oh, I know what it is. Is it so you can meet a physical needs? So that way you can tell them about the spiritual? I was like, no, we're not, we're not really doing a bait and switch thing. I'm not going to do that. It's like, oh, so is it just like this secular humanitarian thing you're doing? I'm like, no. It's actually because of our faith while we're doing it. And it took us a while to figure out, but we began to articulate it. It's like, well, here's why we're digging water wells. It's because one day God's going to make all water clean. And so we thought, why don't we start participating in that right now? Hmm. And so I think a question we can ask, and we may ask it differently. You may think this is too professor theological, right? Well, one of the questions we can ask is, uh, what is God, what is God's preferred present and his promised future look like? God's preferred present is that people, all people drink clean water and don't get sick. And his promised future is one day they will. And so the question about meaning and purpose, how, how can you, if you can name what God, the way that God if we can look, theologians say, this is the way God prefers the world to be, and this is his promised future. This is the way it will be. And you can, students can be a name in that and say, why don't you get in on that now? Because that's the most real thing coming. Hmm. Right? Um, so you could say that about um, the alleviation of poverty, which I know is, seems like a secular, right? Mm -hmm. But why do Christians work to care for the poor? Because one day there's not going to be any poor people. One day, everybody's needs will be fully taken care of. And so Christians do that now. Because the response would be, yeah, but the water's going to get dirty again. But my response was like, yeah, but Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and you don't see Lazarus walking around, do you? He still died. But Jesus participated in God's preferred present when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And his promised future, that, that action was pointing towards this is what God is up to. And by the way, you can participate in it. 
I tell students this all the time. I say, you don't have a mission. I'm the professor. I'm a missions professor. I'm supposed to get students to get missions. But I tell them all the time. I say, you don't have a mission. God's mission has you. Hmm. I tell the church. Church doesn't have a mission. Memorial Road doesn't have a mission. But God's mission has Memorial Road. Hmm. It's God's mission. So whatever missions or whatever, whatever ways that Memorial Road is acting in the world, God was in Edmond before Memorial Road. God was in Uganda before I got there. God has been working out his purposes before creation began. The question is, are you going to get in on it? Now that's leading to meaning and purpose. That's something exciting for this generation coming up. And something that gets them, right? So part of that meaning and purpose conversation is they're afraid their life, there's, a, there's this huge weight on them. It's up to me. We've told them it's up to you. You don't get it together, it's up to you. You don't create meaning and purpose. And there's something freeing about joining something bigger than yourself, right? Like, I want to be a responsible steward in the world. But God's mission in Uganda wasn't up to me. I was just joining in on what he's already doing and trying to be as faithful as I could. And I screwed up a lot. And I still think God is going to do his good work. And I got to participate in it. I got to contribute. I like this quote from Martin Luther King Jr. Human progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men willing to be co-workers with God. Yeah. And I, I, hear you, I hear you liking that idea of co-workers with God, co-laborers yeah. for God. Yeah. yeah, I like it. I, I think the language I, I, same thing, but the language I use is participate. Yeah. Like, so Paul's, the number one phrase Paul uses all the time is in Christ, right? Which is the idea you're participating in Christ, participating in his body, yeah. participating in his life, participating in his death, participating in his resurrection, participating in what Christ is doing in the world. So you're ministers of reconciliation. Christ is the one reconciling. I'm going to participating in the ministry of reconciliation. I love it. So the question, here's a simpler way to put it in my layman's terms here. What is God doing in the world, and how can I participate in what God is already doing? That's it. I love that. Yep. Thanks. Let's give him a round of applause. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you enjoyed the conversation, please hit subscribe and follow our podcast. It's important that we continue these relevant conversations for Christian education.